So if I ask you what, what the end of Easter is, like the, the question, what is the end of Easter, what would be the answer? Uh, yeah, that's, that's way too complex. The end of Easter is actually uh, the letter R. It's the, it's the letter R. Um, but in reality, though, um, I think Easter troubles me every year because it, it, there's so many different angles to it. It's like when uh, your parents catch you lying uh, back when you were a kid, and then you remind them about the tooth fairy and Santa Claus. You know, there's, there's many different perspectives, you know, many different angles, and, and it's kind of all relative at that level. Easter kind of gets funky that way, too. There's so many different angles and so many different things going on, so many different perspectives, uh, so many different traditions that you really kind of begin wondering what's it really all about, what, what should be driving it. And so I, I had that angst this morning that I kind of do every Easter. And last Easter, uh, I kind of just gave in to it. And so I don't know if you were, you probably weren't here last Easter, otherwise you wouldn't be here today. Um, but, but last Easter, I was just so obsessed with this idea that when Jesus came to Jerusalem for the Passover, he went into the temple courts and got really rowdy and angry and started flipping money tables. And when Paul walked into Ephesus and began preaching resurrection, that you don't need these little silver statues of the goddess Artemis anymore because Jesus is risen. He's king of all kings and lord of all lords. And that it literally caused a riot in the town and it upset the economics of the city, right? So last, last year I came in and I was really intrigued by this idea of if we really preach resurrection right, maybe somehow it upsets the economics of the city. And so I was trying to teach that and saying that I was really frustrated at a consumeristic Easter where my whole goal as a, a pastor was supposed to preach a message that led to a really nice mother-in-law lunch. That's what I said last year. That's why I got in trouble. You know, and then I, afterwards, my wife grabbed me and Tim was like, what were you doing? You know, and I was like, I don't, was it that bad? And then I got all this hate mail. I got death threats from mother-in-laws all throughout Central Oregon. And so I can't do that this year. So we're not going to do that this year. Um, but I really do want to get at the heart of what um, Resurrection Sunday is all about. At the heart of, with whatever else it is we're doing, if we could just put on some kind of glasses and see people's souls. What, what is it that we're feeding on? What is it that we're wrestling with? In what way are we being challenged? In what way are we growing? That somehow the main thing would be kept the main thing. Does that matter? So... That's kind of where this morning is, is all about. So the question is, what do Bonhoeffer, David and Goliath, and the Sistine Chapel have in common? And I just want to start with kind of the quote that led me into that line of thinking. And it's a quote from Bonhoeffer. And it says this, Good Friday and Easter free us to think about other things far beyond our own personal fate, about the ultimate meaning of all life, suffering, and events. And we lay hold of a great hope. Now, that sounds just like a great Christian quote, and in the, the age of Facebook and Twitter, like what, what bothers me is a semi-literary uh, person. I'm not, I'm not really a literary person, because um, I'm what C.S. Lewis would call a mercenary reader. This has nothing to do with anything, but uh, mercenary reader is like, I read books for what I can do with it, not because I just love it, right? Some of you, like my daughter, my oldest daughter, they just... You're literary, you love it, so I'm semi-literary. But I get really bothered by all the great things that all the great writers have said and how, how cheap they become when they just show up as Facebook quotes or Twitter. You know what I'm talking about? 
Like, it's like, that was such an obscure, phenomenal quote known only to a few of us until you just had to put it on Facebook without any context. You know what? I'm the only one. I'm, I'm the only one. All right. Um, I'm not the only one. I'm not going on until someone agrees with me. Okay, thank you. I feel the love. I feel the love. Not about there, but I feel the love. Um, so this Bonhoeffer quote, I think we get in the habit of reading it like we do all Christian co- uh, quotes. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah, I do like that Bonhoeffer guy. Wouldn't it be neat if someday I could make a quote, you know, that sounded good? And we miss, we miss the complete power. I mean, we, we miss the heart of what's going on in this quote right here from Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, this, this shows up in his letters and papers from prison that are, are a collection of his writings and his letters and his journals, his diary, when he was in a Gestapo prison uh, towards the end of World War II, uh, under threat of being executed and then ultimately being executed in April of, of 45, um, just weeks before the liberation. And he's writing this as his whole country is really on the brink. Uh, bombs falling all around the prison. They eventually had to move him because uh, Berlin was being bombed so much. So you got this guy that's lived through now over a decade of the, the Nazi regime, and, and he's seen it kind of burgeoning, and now all of a sudden, like the fate of his country just coming and collapsing, his own personal fate in the middle of that. And so when it comes to Easter, and he's thinking about in this prison cell and writing about it, he's thinking about it and writing about it as a Lutheran pastor to some incredibly strong degree that when he says, Good Friday and Easter, free us. Like, free us from what? The bombs going off around the, the, the people that are guarding your prison doors? What is, d- does Good Friday and Easter free you? Does it free you? What does it free you from? From consumerism, from, from fear, from insecurities, from relational tension, from, from enemies, from paranoia? From, I mean, what does it free you from? Good Friday and Easter free us to think about other things far beyond our, our personal fate. I mean, is, is your own personal fate a very real, near thing or not? Does it need to be? Should it be? Um, to think about the ultimate meaning of all life, suffering and events, and we lay hold of a great hope. So this Bonhoeffer quote, when I was wrestling it through in my mind, I'm like, man, there's something here Bonhoeffer's getting about Good Friday and Easter that I want to explore. And I want to set that up a little bit by talking about um, Bonhoeffer's Christ-centered paradigm that I think we have to understand if we're going to go into this and, and really be able to unfold the significance of Good Friday and Easter fully. Bonhoeffer was a, a Lutheran pastor that had a very high Christology. What that means is Christology is the, the study and the doctrines of Christ. Uh, I asked a, a, I have a friend who's got his doctorate in Bonhoeffer, I mean Bonhoeffer studies, and I asked him about a recent biography of Bonhoeffer that's very popular. And I said, well, what would you think? Was it a good biography or not? And he says, yeah, it was a good biography, but there's one aspect that the guy kind of really missed it on. And I'm like, well, what's that? Well, he didn't really understand the high Christology of Bonhoeffer, the, the role and the significance of Christ. And I, what do you mean? He said, well, he would write about kind of Bonhoeffer's views, and he would just kind of say God kind of as a broad kind of moniker. And, and Bonhoeffer would have said Christ in, in most of those instances, that there was a real liturgical formula here 
that this kind of biographer missed. It's something that I experienced when I was in grad school. I picked up a book, uh, an obscure book, just on a, a random Friday and sat down to read it. And it's the only book I've ever powered out 150 pages in one day and just finished it. It was like a nonfiction book. I did that with the Da Vinci Code, um, too. That's a fiction book. And, uh, and I didn't like it at all, because I'm supposed to say that. Because um, it's like, but it was a really, anyway, this has nothing to do with anything. Uh, um, I was reading it because I needed to help other people figure out how to understand it. Is actually really why I was reading it, but I read it one night. Um, Bonhoeffer wrote this book, didn't write this book. He, he has a book called Christ the Center. Um, Christ the Center, it's an obscure book. He didn't actually write it because it was compiled after the war from notes that his students took um, of, uh, on his lectures on Christ. So he was teaching in this underground seminary, underground because the Nazis and everything else. So underground seminary, and he was teaching these lectures on Christ, and, and it evidently was so fascinating that all these students were taking down what he said, and, and of all of the, kind of these surviving notes in, of uh, what Bonhoeffer was saying, they literally could paste together a whole transcription pretty much. And that's what this book, Christ the Center, is. is basically his lectures on Christ. Fascinating book. And where it really was a, a, an eye-opener for me, what I would call an aha moment or a paradigm shift moment, was that he argued, the central kind of argument for the first half of the book was that we come at studying Christ completely wrong. And he says we come at studying Christ to evaluate, critique, and figure out what it is we think of him. So, he, so Christ comes under our microscope, and, and we, we critically analyze him scientifically or philosophically the way we would study and dissect anything else. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it's very much um, kind of the way we do anything in life, right? And so if you turn to John, we can see, um, oh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 7, we can see kind of the analogy that Bonhoeffer gives for developing his his view of Christology and the starting point for Christology. So Luke chapter 7, it's the story of Jesus being anointed by a sinful woman. So I'll just kind of read through this whole passage fairly quickly. Now one of the Pharisees invited, so this is uh, Luke chapter 7 verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. When a woman who had uh, lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, man, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and that this kind of woman she is and that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, and neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, yet you did not give me, let me back up. Do you see this I came into your house, your house. So there's obligations of uh, hospitality in that culture. Yet you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, but she loved much, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Now, Jesus in this passage is trying to, to show a juxtaposition or a contrast between these two people. And Bonhoeffer, in his, his lectures, picks up on that and says, listen, the one uh, brings Jesus in to see what he thinks of him. Here's this guy preaching and he's teaching in and, and, and the countryside. And people are wondering who he is. And let me bring him into my house. I'm going to question him. I'm going to evaluate him. And I'm going to see what I think of him. We do this a lot. We do it with the new and latest and greatest Christian books. Or if there's a popular author, we get together at dinner tables. I don't know if I like him. You know, do you like him? Well, he's not theologically sound. And you know, we, we kind of evaluate people. Or you know, what about the new pope? Well, I don't know. He's Catholic. You know, and, and you know, we, argue, we argue about it. And we do that. That's what we do. Okay? And so this is what the Pharisee is doing. And he's doing it to such a degree that he's lowered Jesus so much and elevated his his, his critical reasoning and evaluation so much that he doesn't even treat Jesus as, as a guest of honor. He's so focused on evaluating him that, that he misses the whole honor part, right? I mean, this is what's going on. And then the woman comes in and she's lowered herself to such a high degree, falling at Jesus' feet, weeping and broken. And from her very posture, she's basically elevating Christ to such a high position, herself to a low one, his posture is, let me see what I think of you. Her posture is, everything I'm going to think about myself, everything I'm going to do or evaluate in terms of reality, Jesus, will start at this moment with you. You dictate my understanding of reality. So what Bonhoeffer is really trying to say is that um, we all have... Uh, Jesus the, the, is the logos. It's the Greek word in the, in the book of John, you know... Um, the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, that Greek word there is logos, and it means like the divine ordering principle, okay? Um, that's, that's how by Christ everything was created. It's the, it's the wisdom, the divine ordering principle, the Word of God that, that makes everything come about. That's, that's Jesus, and he's, he's the capital L logos of God. Does that make sense? Okay? We're made in the image of God. And when we were made male and female in the garden and we had dominion over everything, we had this innate ability to make sense of reality, to order it, to structure it, to rule over it, um, to, to bring things about. And what happens is, is when we use that, that's a reflection of the divine logos, to analyze the divine logos, we're letting the, the lowercase l our reasoning, critique, ability, evaluative skills, try to be the umbrella under which we're putting the capital L, Lagos. And Bonhoeffer says, you start there, you get it all wrong. When you start with, what do I think about this idea of the Son of God becoming man? Or two divine natures being in one person? Or Jesus having the attribute, uh, attributes of God, but not, but not really claiming them? Like, what do I think philosophically of that? I mean, how do I parse out that mystery? It's, it's so different. If I begin there and, and make my Christology all about parsing out the complexities of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, um, what Bonhoeffer says is everything begins from the wrong starting point. And he says, and that's how most lectures on Christology begin. 
And so Bonhoeffer says, we need to start in a different point. Uh, we start from a position of faith, accepting the lordship and the headship and the reality of Christ as the divine logos. And we look to him, and then in that moment we say, now how are we supposed to think about everything, including you? And Bonhoeffer says, now that's, where the, true, uh, that's the true point of understanding Christ. When, when Christians start there, our Christology gets off on the right foot. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is what... Um, what Bonhoeffer was arguing in his book, Christ the Center. When we took as the number one commitment for Antioch Church, it might even be in your bulletins, but when we say that the number one commitment, and we don't use the word value because if I've ever explained this, um, value to me is, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have much teeth to it. I mean, I value a good cheeseburger. You know what I mean? Like I, but that doesn't really define me. We're not defined by what we value. We're defined by what we're committed to, what we lean into, what we make decisions like to prioritize. So our values, I mean, we can get to where we're like, I'm on value number 500. I mean, there's an endless list of them. But what really matters and marks us and defines us um, are our commitments. And so at Antioch, our chief commitment is that we're Christ-centered. That's where we start. So there's... um, a whole aspect of doctrine that then falls out of this. That, that aspect of doctrine, which is a bit obscure and maybe abstract, is that all of Scripture testifies to Christ. All of Scripture testifies to Christ. The Old Testament points forward, the New Testament points back, but Jesus is the subject throughout Scripture. Jesus says, the, uh, says this himself when he's talking to the Pharisees, In John chapter 5, in verse 39, he's frustrated with them and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Like you're studying the scriptures to get answers and truth over here. But don't you understand that what you're studying really is about me? That I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you turn to the end of uh, Luke, we see kind of a definitive passage this way. The end of Luke, it's actually resurrection day. Luke chapter 24. Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears to two uh, people. He appears to some men on the road to Emmaus. And this is what um, transpires. In verse 17, he says, he asks them, Jesus appears and he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Because they don't yet recognize who he is. And Jesus asks, what things? They say, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, and the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. So, um, side note, total side note, um, I'm not a morning person like at all. I'll stay up to midnight, one o'clock every night working on stuff. 
Um, it's why I became a pastor, so that I could have a work schedule that fit my, my nocturnal patterns. I don't know. But so this morning, uh, I had to set an alarm for real early because we had kids that needed to be in a kid's choir and two Easter Sundays and all that. My alarm went off, and, and, and this is the first uh, thought that came to my mind. It's, I've never thought this before about Easter, but um, Jesus didn't sleep in on Easter. It's, that's powerful. It's powerful theology right there. I mean, listen, let me, let me read the text to you one more time. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. So on Easter Sunday, um, Jesus didn't sleep in. Anyways, I got to preach every week, and if I can't, like, just say stuff like that, it really won't become fun anymore, and then I'm done, right? So thank, thank you. Um, Thank you, I feel the love. There we go. All right, uh, so the women, they came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels um, who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things? And then, and then enter his glory. Don't you understand? This has always been the storyline, the arc of the, of the story. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so the Pentateuch and then the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then it goes down and Jesus appears to the disciples. And he eats with them. And then verse 44, he says to them, this is what I've told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the prophets, minor and major prophets, and the Psalms, the wisdom literature, that all of the Old Testament speaks of me and talks about me. We, we see this um, over and over when the New Test, uh, in the New Testament when Jesus' disciples begin to show from the Old Testament passages that relate to Christ and we see this whole idea that Scripture is a, is a Christ-centered story, that when we read things, we're supposed to read it through that lens of understanding not just what was happening on the surface, but what was the deeper meaning about this that speaks to Jesus, to, that speaks to Christ, um, and speaks to what God was always doing in Christ. So when we see um, the book of Genesis, and it talks about the offspring and how Satan will, will get his heel, but he'll crush its head. That's a reference to Christ. When we see Abraham talking about uh, this idea of sacrificing his son, his only son, the promised heir through whom God was going to bless kind of this wonderful and bring about this wonderful nation, a people unto himself. And he asks Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. And in faith, Abraham goes to sacrifice his son and doesn't withhold his only son from God. And, and God at the last minute says, no, I will send. I will send the sacrifice. And he, and he withholds it. And, and that, that speaks to what's going on all throughout the scriptures and the nation of Israel. And I, I talked a couple weeks ago about how Christ, like the vine, like the nation of Israel, is the one whom we join. And through that, we receive spiritual blessing. And, and this whole story that works itself out has on these multiple levels this deep understanding of, of what Christ, what is happening with Christ even before he comes. So when we get to passages like 1 Samuel 17... 
we read it differently than what we've been taught. So 1 Samuel 17, let's read about David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, Bonhoeffer says Christ is at the center. Scripture says that there's this storyline of Christ that's going on on all the pages if we would look deep enough. We come to 1 Samuel 17 and we've got this king, the first king of Israel that was chosen because he was the largest, baddest dude in Israel. He's who we would have picked for king because he was the toughest and he could lead people into battle. That was what Saul was. Yet he didn't have a heart um, after God. And so God goes and anoints this small shepherd boy that has the right kind of heart. And, and as the kind of storyline evolves, the big bad king, who's a tough dude, is out and his armies are arrayed and they're facing the Philistines. And this guy named Goliath is coming down every day and challenging. Uh, so if you saw the movie um, Troy uh, with Brad Pitt, there's, in the beginning of it, there's this kind of aspect of representative warfare. You send down your champion, we send down our champion, they fight each other, and the fate of the rest hinges on their champion, who's symbolically the head uh, of, of that whole army or his people. Does that make sense? And so uh, Goliath is coming down saying, send us your champion, we'll fight, and we'll see who's going to become whose slave, and you know, which army is going to be enslaved by the other army. Who's going to be saved? Who's going to be the victor? And Saul isn't going down. He was the one that was anointed to be the leader or the head or the king or the representative of his people. He's not going down. And there's nobody in his armies uh, that is going down. And so David shows up, and he's a shepherd boy. And, he, and he's looking at what's going on, and he's saying, what's going on? And one of his older brothers, he's asking a bunch of people, and one of his older brothers comes along, and this is fascinating. The older brother says, you arrogant little boy. You know, you're making this all about you. Isn't that ironic? Um, rejected in his own hometown, so to speak, his own family, and seen as being all about himself and missing the real weighty matters of spirituality or religion. And David's like, no, no, you got it all wrong. He's saying, "Um, can't I speak for myself? Verse 29, 1 Samuel 17. And then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. And what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And so Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Notice that word servant. The servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go and fight against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. This man's been fighting since his youth. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. He's a shepherd. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant, who has killed both the lion and the bear, um, this uh, Philistine, will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. 
So then we get the whole part of little David goes to put on the big armor. It doesn't work. I can't wear these. So he takes his staff, takes the five smooth stones um, in his slingshot, and he approaches the Philistine. And the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, because it's so heavy, right? So full armor, full, full giant in front of him. And he looks at David over and sees that he's only a boy, and he despises him. He says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And David says to him, verse 45, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole of the world will know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, all those gathered here, uh, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands." All those gathered here will know that this is not, that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. So what's really going on in this passage? We, uh, most of us at least have heard it, okay? And the typical way of, of talking about it would be this. What's the giant in your life? That's the application. What, what's the giant you need to go slay? What's the, what's the obstacle that you're quaking in fear in front of and you need to go slay that giant? You need to have the faith to go slay that giant. Um, what, are, what are your five smooth stones, the things that you're going to use in faith to slay your giant? That's what we teach in kids' ministry. That's what we teach to adults. There's books on this. And what it really reduces it down to is a me-centered reading of Scripture. And it misses the deeper understanding of what's really going on here. King David, a man after God's own heart, stands symbolically out in front of God's people to challenge the foe that has them enslaved in fear and, and threat of death. And he stands out there in faith as God's agent, as the servant and the shepherd. And through faith, he slays the giant so that salvation can be brought to his people. Likewise, the son of David, who sits on the throne of David as king after the likeness of David, stands out in front as the servant of the Lord and as the shepherd to fight and to face the foe that has us all in fear and threat of death. And he slays that giant so that we all, the people of God, might live and be saved. There are Christological elements deeper going on in our scriptures than what we, we read in this surface thing. And when we understand that scripture is not all about us, but it's about God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, we begin to understand things deeper and say, that really matters. What God is doing in history really matters. And when Jesus dies and, and rises again, that really matters. And it doesn't just matter for me. It matters for all of us. And we focus it on Christ. There's a verse um, in the, the Psalms that is fascinating in my own little narrative, my own little personal history. Um, I had to have people in the first service tell me where it was because I couldn't remember where it was. Um, but it's Psalm 118. 
So when uh, I just told you that I, I'm not a morning person, right? So when I had to get up, like I had a paper out um, my whole life. I had to work like from the time I was nine because my dad was an immigrant from Holland, learned to work really hard, and, and so he, he learned to teach me how to work really hard. Um, so like by the time I could ride a bike, I was throwing papers, you know, and so when I was in junior high, I was getting up at 4 a.m. and delivering papers to businessmen that, that, you know, were sleeping in past when I was getting up, right? So then I'd come back, I'd go to bed for like an hour, and then it would be time to wake up for school. I, I actually believe, honestly, because my dad is six foot three, that all of that stunted my growth. <laughs> I, I honestly believe that. I would be six foot three if it wasn't for my, my phenomenal work ethic. Um, <laughs> but so in high school, I'd come back and then I would lay back down and then um, it would be time to get up. And, and I never wanted to get up. So my mom was one of those moms that had all these different ways of, of trying to force you to get up, you know, turn the light on, and, and you curse her the first time, pull the covers back, you triple curse her and all her relatives, except for you, you know what I mean, like, you know how just infuriating that is, um, and then she would start coming in my room and doing things and singing this song, right, Christian song, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it, oh, this is the day, this is... And it was like her way of like, isn't this a great day? You need to get out of bed. But she, she would do it kind of like that. So the, the song began to be this, this um, annoying kind of thing in my mind. You know, it's a total achy, breaky heart. Can't get it out of your head. And you're in the shower. You're, you're angry at mom, yet you're singing this little chirpy song, right? Um, and so then when I, I really got serious about my faith and gave my life to the Lord in college... I mean, those of you that know me know that the most phenomenal insight in life, spiritual insight in life for me, was when I realized that happiness, which we're all wired for, doesn't come when we reject God and go try to just live our own way. It's, a, it's like a bad investment. Um, but it actually comes when we obey God, seek to follow God, and we, we get this kind of joy that comes out of that, of being with God and having goodness and being rewarded for the fruit of good character. I was trying to teach my daughters yesterday, we, we hiked the river trail, and my two oldest, I was like, listen, good character and good decisions lead to a good experience of fullness of life. So what do you need for good character and good decisions? You need to be Christ-like and have wisdom. You know, I, mean, I was trying to teach them because there's always a promise of happiness in bad decisions until you get there and it's a mirage and you're like, oh, it's like eating cotton candy. Like, looks really like a good idea. And then you're like, this is a really bad idea. That's why they sell it at Carnival where people aren't smart. You know, like, <laughs> smart people don't go to carnivals. Um, that's not, is that offensive to anyone? <laughs> But isn't that universally, maybe it's not? Did I just step into a class faux pas? I don't know if I did. Um, <laughs> let it go. Uh, but so this is this huge insight in life. And so I really started um, studying all the scriptures that uh, have the word rejoice. Because, look, um, joy is like a moral form of happiness, a steady happiness, uh, a deferred happiness, 
Um, those words have a lot to do with each other. And joy is this great word we see in the New Testament. And we don't make the connection often, but the word enjoy literally means to take in joy. And the word rejoice is a manifestation of joy. It's how those three words work together. Enjoy, joy, and rejoice. They're all, it's, it, we, we separate them, but they all go together. You can't rejoice without joy. And you can't have joy if you're not enjoying or taking joy in from something. That's why having a relationship with Christ and, and having closeness with God fuels the joy and allows us to rejoice in return. It, it all goes like that, see? Uh, so I studied all the past. Uh, I was, I got, well, first, I was enamored by the word joy. And so I was in the, um, the book of Philippians, and it has all this great joy stuff. So it's like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. And right about that time, so this is, I'm like six, eight months in, this church in Walhalla, South Carolina, asked me to come preach a sermon to him. First sermon I ever preached. I was terrified to death, wrote it all out, did all these crazy things, wore a suit jacket, got up, and, and it was a church of 80 people, and 60, 65 of them were all related to each other. Walhalla, South Carolina. Um, and I, I got to telling them about this Christian song, this great Christian song. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I was talking about rejoice and be glad in the day and, and all of it together. And, and then I sat down. The, the pastor got up and he did an altar call. And I remember just being so freaked out. I'm like, who are you? Who, it's like your cousin. I mean, I, I didn't know who he was fishing for. You know, I'm like, it's all your family. Like, it's, it's Walhalla. Um, so, but, but the, here's this crazy thing. About a couple months later... I'm, I'm in this uh, room, uh, it, was, it was a bathroom actually, and, uh, and I'm standing there and I look over and there's one of these um, cross-stitch things on the wall. You know what I'm talking about? These like Christian cross-stitch things? And it says, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it, Psalm 118, 24. And I was like, no way, that was, that's actually in the Bible, like, my sermon would have been so much better, like, if I could have said it was actually coming from Scripture, right? Um, and I was like, oh, but, but it's in the Bible. So then, like, a, a year or two later, I was, I was reading it in the Bible, and I had, I had learned, by now I'm in seminary and in grad school, and I had learned about how there's this thread, the scarlet thread of redemption throughout Scripture, and that... Christ is in all of it, but we tend to humanize Scripture for our, our, our own immediate right here, right now application. And I was reading this passage again, so let's read it again. Psalm 118, 24. This is the verse. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But let's back up and get the context. Verse 19, Psalm 118, verse 19. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Peter later quotes this directly about Christ. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, 
and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What do you hear now? The gate that the righteous shall enter by. John chapter 10. Um, I am the gate. And then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the sheep know my voice. And then Peter takes this next verse and says, the stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. The one that his own family rejected him, his own town. And then that stone, that building block, becomes the foundation for the new temple, what is going to happen with the church. And we are being fit into it, says Peter, like living stones into this temple. And this whole thing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If it's about me, that verse, this is the day, says all about how am I going to drum up this amazing attitude to be the happy, happy, joy, joy guy today that everyone's going to be glad is around because I just smile a lot. That's really, it's self-help rhetoric from Scripture to help me exude joy but really not grounded in anything other than like, wouldn't it be neat if? If we understand it in context, this is all about the day of the Lord's salvation. This is all about Christ. This is all about when God is gonna do what he always promised he was gonna do. And that day that in this context is still forward, but later is looking backward, that day when God was gonna send his representative, the son of David, forward, that day is a day we rejoice in because in that day, we receive salvation. We we receive forgiveness. We receive everything we've been promised as God is working out this narrative uh, that he is doing in the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. And now all of a sudden my joy isn't just about my joy, but it's grounded in something that fuels my joy. This day, this Savior, this event, this story is what I can root myself in that I would have joy and be able to rejoice as I move out into life. So now when I come to your dinner party and it's all about my smile or happy, happy, joy, joy, to whatever degree it's there, it's not just because I'm, I'm telling myself self-help verses. It's because I understand where I'm anchored and where I'm rooted and what significant that, uh, significance that plays to my joy and my ability to rejoice. Does that make sense? Bonhoeffer says Christ is the center. David and Goliath, in our understanding of the Christ-centeredness of Scripture, changes our paradigm for how we understand our faith, how we read Scripture. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51, verse 4, says this. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me and my justice, my justice will become a light to the nations. This is a passage about the gospel, about the good news, about Advent, about Christ coming. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. My, my own arm will bring justice to the nations. This is God sending Christ, his son, 
to bring justice to the nations. He's speaking to that event, the storyline, the narrative arc of what God is doing, how it involves Christ, and ultimately he's going to bring justice to the nations. And when we flip over just one page and we get to uh, Psalm, or Isaiah 53, it's this whole passage about the suffering servant. Um, going right up before it, it says, See, my servant will act wisely. And then we get down into 53, verse 4. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 4. says this, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the great suffering servant passage about we, the sheep, and how he, the shepherd, is going to come and seek and save the lost, uh, the lost and take the punishment for us all. Do you see where it's going? Turn to chapter 59. Chapter 59, verse 9. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. Skipping to verse 12. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us and we acknowledge our iniquities, God, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our back on our God. Verse 14, so justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on, the, put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on, a, on his head. He put on righteousness as his breast, breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And I want to pause there for just a moment. So God's own right arm works salvation, the Messiah, the one who was promised, Christ, which is a Greek word, Christos, the anointed one, which is uh, just the transliteration of Messiah into Greek. But this Jesus, the one who was promised, the anointed one, the king who was supposed to come, the son of God, the son of man, another phrase we get from Ezekiel, has come, and he is working righteousness and justice for us all. Now I want to skip to the Sistine Chapel part of this sermon. Uh, the Sistine Chapel, a couple things on the background, um, painted by Michelangelo. Um, it's a little nondescript chapel off to the side of St. Peter's. Michelangelo, fascinating story if, if you get into church history, actually grew up in the home of Giovanni de Medici, uh, the part of the Medici family that were, were the rich bankers out of Florence. And Giovanni de' Medici, who he grew up with, later became Pope Leo X. And Leo, when he became Pope, instituted this sale of indulgence, basically on a, a mass marketing the sale of forgiveness on a, a really high level so that he could bring in money to build St. Peter's. 
So he was the one that was really finishing the building of St. Peter's, instituted the sale of these indulgences, which triggered the, the ire and the anger of a monk up in Wittenberg, Germany, named Martin Luther, and brought on, basically, the Reformation. During this time, you've got, uh, you've got Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. And he paints the famous ceiling that we have. And uh, on that ceiling, you've got the, the hands of God touching Adam, and you've got all these fascinating passages from Scripture. But on the front wall, you have what is painted uh, the Last Judgment. The Last Judgment. And uh, the loincloths, just um, Michelangelo didn't paint those. In the Counter-Reformation, which was um, kind of Catholicism reforming itself against some of the critiques of the Protestant kind of break-off or splinter, uh, it was seen as a bit too racy, and so a different artist came in and was hired to, to paint the loincloths. But what you see here is the last judgment. And I think there's something really fascinating when we begin to understand the narrative arc of Scripture, where Christ sits in this narrative arc of Scripture, that there's this thing called the last judgment that we as Protestants don't talk about much. What do we talk about? What do we tend to talk about or emphasize? We tend to emphasize grace and forgiveness and then heaven and hell. Grace and forgiveness and then heaven and hell. But there's this thing um, called the last judgment that, that exists here that's all throughout Scripture that we can't miss if we understand that the, the Jesus that rose from the dead because there's an empty tomb still exists now and, and will obviously still exist in the future such that we all will come face to face with Jesus Christ. And we will all look him in the eye and he will actually say to us whether he knows us or doesn't know us. That the bigger question isn't heaven or hell, the bigger question is, does Christ know us? Are we known by him and do we know him? And that's a question that I think we ask ourselves or, or the weightiness of that question or the awe of that question um, or the forcefulness of it is brought into play when we realize there is this last judgment that we will have to see Christ. And, and what does that really say and mean to us? So when we read Scripture with these lenses, we begin to understand that all of it talked about the death and the resurrection of Christ, but because of the authority of Christ and the kingship of Christ and, and where he stands in relationship to end time, he will be the righteous judge that we all someday meet and that we can't rule this out of our discussion when we're talking as Christians about the nature of Scripture and the nature of time and how this story is going to unfold. Does that make sense? Because here's how it comes in. So I just read Isaiah 59 about God's own arm working righteousness and salvation and justice. But listen to how it ends. Verse 17, it goes, He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood 
that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Wow, so there's, there's a day of judgment which really is going to judge those who are the enemies of God and bring into salvation those who are the friends, those who are the penitent ones. Um, that's a part of this whole story of salvation and of Christ. You can't separate it out from these passages. If you'll turn with me to um, 2 Peter, we'll see this one more way. 2 Peter goes into it like this. Chapter 3, verse 8. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So he's patient, wanting you to come to salvation and not to perish. In verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? So our Christology, our high Christology, affects our eschatology, doctrine of last things, end times. So how we understand Christ and his role in salvation affects how we understand end times, eschatology, which affects our understanding of ethics. Let me show you that again. Watch how this goes. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear. Verse 11 then. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Eschatology dictates your ethics. So high Christology into an eschatology into an understanding of ethics, and this is what Peter answers. I'll tell you what the answer is. The day of judgment, because of it, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt into the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with the wisdom that God gave him. He speaks the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and un unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Let's break that down for just a second. So Paul is writing scripture that, remember, is easy to misunderstand if we don't come at it with a high Christology and understand what's really going on. And if you come at scripture simple-mindedly, some people who are bent on their own destruction can mislead you with regard to what it means and confuse the idea that there's a very significant thing about Christ and salvation and that that leads to a very significant understanding of end times and the day of judgment which really dictates what we should be thinking about and how we should be living in terms of our lives and our ethics. Because as Peter said, 
you ought to live holy and godless lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So Peter is really admonishing us to understand sober-mindedly the story of what's going on and not to lose sight of that and think that it's all about us. We're all about today and my own life and peace and abundance and, and my best life and, and whatever that might be today that's, that's missing the story of what's going on and that it's really all about our rootedness in Jesus Christ that really matters. That is the fundamental question this morning. If we could, again, put on those glasses and see the souls of individuals, our children, you, our family members, the real question is, what is your rootedness in terms of Jesus Christ? To what degree are you in and are you growing in that relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have and understand a high Christology that leads to an understanding of end times and eschatology that helps inform how it is you're going to live in this life that you may be grounded, enjoy that relationship so that you're full of joy and then therefore are able to emanate and rejoice outward so that people can see your light shining and through that understand what it really means to be in relationship with God. That's the question. That's, that's why I was telling someone, I mean, I'll just, I, I like being honest with you guys um, because then I'm being honest. I don't know. Um, I, I'm the only pastor I know that, that, that does not like Easter Sunday. For me, Jesus is risen every day. And, and the goal is for us to learn to practice resurrection in our Christian lives. But I find it hardest to help people understand the resurrection on Easter Sunday because we're, it's like light pollution. We get so distracted by everything. Um, and the eggs and, and the clothes and I don't know. And, and these are blue, not purple. <laughs> I, someone tried to, oh, it's Easter, you're wearing purple jeans. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Nobody told me anything about that. Um, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like there's so much distraction going on that I'm the only past, uh, pastor I know that's like, that, that struggles with that on Easter. Because what really matters is the resurrection and the working out of that in your life. And sometimes we get really confused with seeing the main thing and keeping the main thing the main thing because we just have so much tradition kind of grown up. Linda, our children's pastor and I were talking before this, she had this great thought this morning. She's like, I really wonder what um, it looks like in different countries celebrating Easter, like in Argentina or New Zealand or the Congo. Like, what does it look, I mean, they don't all do Easter eggs, I'm sure, Right? I mean, so what does it look like in those countries? And so she's got this idea next year of, of kind of doing Easter around the world for our kids, which I, th I think is a really cool idea. But it got me thinking. I'm like, maybe if we understood it through the, the eyes of different um, cultural lenses, we could begin to discern that one common element that runs through all those cultures, that Easter really is about the resurrection. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it and rooted in it and derive my joy and satisfaction from it. So we'll close on this. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 
We'll start in verse 13. 1 John 4, 13 says this, We know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Our confidence comes from having fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that He will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. As we have this fellowship with God and we know that relationship and we experience the love of God, we have confidence and we don't have fear when we look ahead to that day of judgment. So that dreadful day is a day that we actually look forward to as the day of our salvation. That that day becomes a source of joy almost. And this is what is going on as we are in relationship with God and understand the love of God. The New Testament, far from, I think, what we would come to believe if we listened to Christian preaching in the American church, it, it does not at all not talk about judgment because it, it spends all its time talking about salvation. It actually talks about salvation in such a way that we understand that the judgment that is to come is one that we can have confidence with because of our relationship with God. And when we understand the Christ-centeredness of this and how to come do it with the right paradigm, and we take Scripture at face value, we walk away with a different sense of where we ground ourselves in this story. Scripture is not about us. It's about what God is doing through Jesus Christ, His Son, to save His people as He representatively and symbolically takes the battle for us. I'll read it one more time. Uh, actually, here's a quote by Carl Henry, uh, the late Christian theologian. He says, the early Christians did not say, look what the world is coming to. I, a lot of people these days are just all negative on what the world is coming to. The early Christians did not say, look what the world is coming to, but look what has come into the world. And I think it's off that that Bonhoeffer said that original quote, Good Friday and Easter, free us to think about other things far beyond our own personal fate, about the ultimate meaning of all life, suffering, and events. And we lay hold of a great hope. Father, we commit this day to you. Let it be about your story, your narrative, an empty tomb, and a risen Savior that we wait expectantly to see once again. I pray that you would just help us see clearly, take away all the things that would distract we love you. We know that you love us. Let us rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.